Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for joining me here on The Tully Show. As always, I am deeply, sincerely humbled by your presence. I guarantee you, if you have even a passing interest in the greatest rock music of all time, you are going to enjoy the holy heck out of the conversation I had with longtime Boston Globe, etc. music journalist Jim Sullivan. We will get into that shortly. Real quick, let me remind you, The Deuce, the podcast I have been hosting for a year plus with the people's champ, Jesse May Peluso, is now available for free wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you are listening to this, you can also find The Deuce. I know some people have had some trouble finding it. I promise you it's there. There are other shows with the word Deuce in the title. Ours is the one that's called The Deuce that has a picture of me and Jesse Papaluso. Hopefully that will help. When you're done here, go find that. Listen to it. Rate it. Re- review it. Subscribe to it. Tell your friends. Love it. But first things first, Jim Sullivan on David Bowie and Lou Reed and Roy Orbison and many more. Enjoy. Okay, you ready to start this show? <laughs> Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live, on tape, from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, for a quarter century, a staff writer for the Boston Globe with bylines along the way in additional publications of note too numerous to mention, plus the author of a new and career-spanning book entitled Backstage and Beyond 45 Years of Classic Rock Chats and Rants, Volume 1, available for pre-order now through Trouser Press Books. Hello and welcome, Jim Sullivan. Hello, Mike. Thank you for joining me. Looking back at your career as you did for this book, I'm curious to know. Uh, I always like to ask this of people who've written something about their career or about their life. Life is episodic, ramshackle, chaotic. We've got personal stuff going on. We've got professional stuff going on. When you actually take a linear look at all the stuff you've been up to for all of these years, does anything stand out to you? about your work were there any surprises did it surprise you did it look different in retrospect than it felt at the time did you get any sense of narrative of through line of what it has all meant so far ah good one um i would say yes i mean in the sense of realizing well or thinking at the beginning uh the very first interview i did with was with the band slade back in 1975 and it was a very good experience. I read about it in the intro. And then we go, as you, as you said, you know, 45 years ahead or more. And uh, I guess the through line for me in terms of what I realized was that I'm pretty good at this thing, this interviewing thing, and getting on the right wavelength with the artists that I'm talking to. And that doesn't mean I'm the same person. I mean, it means somewhat like an actor, I think. You kind of try to suss out the situation. and see where they're at, whether they're in a whimsical mood, uh, comedic, serious, reflective, uh, sometimes almost therapeutic. I know uh, Ray Davies said to me once that, my God, this feels like therapy, and it was like, in a good way. Um, so things change uh, constantly. And also, I think that's been one of the great things about the job, is that 
even though the process might be the same, sitting down in front of a typewriter in the old days and a computer now, uh, banging out those same letters, right, same you know, time after time, but every story is different. Every interview is different. And the idea that the job changes every day, uh, it, it has kept it exciting, has kept it interesting all these years. So as I started to spend time with the book, I realized pretty quickly that, uh, you know, there's just too many different people you speak to, uh, you cover in the book for, me, for us to get into in one interview. So as I was trying to suss out who I did and did not want to ask you about, I realized the unifying theme wasn't so much the artists whose music I like the most. It was mm -hmm. more the ones who I feel like I have the least feel for as individuals and i was hoping you might be able to help us you know having spent some time having picked their brain um get a sense of, of of who these people are and how it relates to the music that we know them through so before i get into them individually let me ask you a couple of general questions how are great big rock stars different from us how are they the same are do you because i've had experience sometimes of talking to somebody where i say wow if i didn't know that they had done x y and z i would think this was a regular person off the street mm -hmm. and there have been other times where i've said wow this is good thing this person is successful because they built this wall of facade around themselves there's a scared little bunny inside this person <laughs> that's barely able to function good thing they keep on writing hit singles do you it's obviously a big, broad question, but do you experience them to be normal people or are they fundamentally different from us? Well, the short answer is it depends and it varies. Right. Uh, they're not in this book, but let's take, for instance, Kiss, Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, who I've interviewed a number of times over the years. Uh, they would be on a different level or they would want to be on a different level. They would want to be perceived as rock stars talking to you who's and no disrespect, but you're not on their level. Right. And, and that's fine. You adjust to that and you go, okay, you carry yourself as a rock star in Gene Simmons case, a rock star who has had many, many women. Well, it's Paul too. They're, they had their time with ladies and scored and made a ton of money. So they are successful. Right. Uh, but I would also say that mostly, and and I think maybe I've been fortunate or maybe this is one of the things I do well, the people I talk to, uh, when you get right down to it, I mean, they're re reflective about what they do. And if you know what you're talking about, if you know their history, their background, uh, their songs, where they're coming from, and can move it in that direction, they understand that you're empathetic to who they, to their cause, if you will, to their music, uh, or, or want to know more about it. And therefore, it's a very leveling experience. And, uh, I, it's funny. I, I think I write in the book. I, I've really not been intimidated much at all. I think the only time I was, and this is in the book, was meeting Pete Townsend for the first time. And, uh, the intimidation faded right away. And, and the reason for that was, we were in New York uh, at a hotel. I came in and I happened to be wearing a suit jacket and with my jeans and T-shirt or whatever. And on that suit jacket, on the lapel, I had a Pogues pin, the band. I, I had just gone to see them. It was 1985 in London. And I'd forgotten I'd had the button on the jacket. I just don't wear the jacket very much. And up oh, there it was last time I wore it. So we sat down to do the interview and face-to-face. -face, and Pete's looking at me, looks at the jacket, looks at the Pogues thing, goes, oh, you're a Pogues fan, are you? 
And I go, yes, I am. I just saw them uh, at the Mean Fiddler in London two months ago, whatever it was. And we started from there because he was a Pogues fan. And so we were able to begin the conversation, not talking about the who, not talking about the new book he just written, talking about another band entirely that we were both fans of. We were fans. He's a rock fan. I'm a rock fan. And then we moved into other stuff. And and it got quite deep and heavy in places. Uh, Pete is a very uh, self-reflective and sometimes rec- self-recriminating uh, interview, uh, self-flagellating at times. Uh, but it's, it started off on that that level of kind of, of common ground. And uh, that's been more the experience with me than, than not. One other general question, and I guess this probably would apply more to the artists you're going to cover in volume two of this book, because a lot of mm-hmm. people in this book were already established, well-established by the time you met them. They were maybe more on the back nine of their career. But in your experience of seeing people at multiple points along right. their career trajectory, if you had to answer this in a general way, how do you think fame changes people? Did you see artists who seemed affected uh, after the the second or third album in a way that they hadn't been, you know, when they were releasing the first? Sure, it, it definitely. Um, it, it's a good question in that I did throughout, for both both books, really, I caught artists at various points in their career, maybe at highs, midpoints, lows, whatever you want to call it. In this book, Volume 1, when I talked to, let me say, Roy Orbison, the last chapter in the book, he was on the verge of a comeback with the You Got It record, which he never saw to be released. Uh, he died after the last concert he played in Boston. I did the last interview with him. And he was, you know, his career had stalled, obviously, at some level, some point, but it was on the rise again. And it was a man who was rediscovering that people liked him. And not to sound all Stuart Smalley about it, but, uh, he he told me he had just seen, I think it was in Toronto, he'd seen a marquee with his name on it and it said, Roy Orbison sold out. And he just kind of had one of these moments of, gee, wow, that's me. They like me still. And and so as far along in into his career as he was, he had this enthusiasm of, it's another wave. It's about to come. And we all sadly know that that wave was cut off by his heart attack. That's, I mean, one example of um, an older artist uh, who was experiencing that kind of renaissance. The second book uh, out in October, yeah, that deals with the roughly bands that started in the mid-1970s onward. So that's Ramones and Talking Heads and Cramps and uh, the punk, post-punk, new wave era, pretty much. So a lot of that had to do with talking to bands at that near beginning uh, phase of their career. And then because these books, some of the books are just maybe one or two incidents or or encounters, some of them extend longer. So in the chapters, you will see where maybe an artist evolves from a certain point of view, maybe just youthful enthusiasm to a more wizened point of view, more deeper into their career or more aware of the business itself and how the excitement of signing a contract and getting a record deal, which is so exciting and so important. Once you get into that record deal, sometimes you realize, hmm, maybe this, uh, maybe I didn't get a great deal, you know? Um, so it, it is, it is interesting to hear, you know, from, hear from them at different points where the music and where the art and where the commerce 
has taken them for good or for bad. And, uh, you know, obviously there are examples of, uh, of both in, in both books, really. So let's talk about some of these artists individual. One thing, well, two things, I guess, struck me about the section on David Bowie. Obviously, when you think of David Bowie, one of the first things that comes to mind is the evolving nature of his public image, his public persona. He struck me always in every interview I've ever seen as um, being warm and genuine and connecting on a human level, but at the same time, always being aware that he was being filmed, always being aware that he was being, he was playing David Bowie and people expected David Bowie out of him at all times. The thing that st stood out to me from the chapter on him is he claimed that uh, his career changes were not calculated in the slightest. I'll read the quote. Believe me, it's very hard for me to say this, but there's very little that I do as an artist that is actually calculated. I would not, I could imagine Madonna saying that, and I wouldn't believe her. And now <laughs> I've heard David Bowie say that, and I'm not sure that I believe him, but I wasn't the one actually speaking to him. To what extent? I mean, that can't be 100% true, but how much truth do you think there actually was to that statement? I think there is a lot of truth to it, and I'll tell you why. Um, when he moved into um, the music he made uh, for Outside and some of his latter solo records, uh, he was, I think, searching for a new direction, and he found it. Um, you know, in the clubs and he talked very openly about kind of hearing this new, uh, beat crazy sounds, uh, you know, heavily rhythmic, bass oriented and kind of glomming onto that and, and being admitting that he was there observing and also kind of taking notes and thinking about like, huh, then maybe this is something I can incorporate. Maybe this is something I can use. So. If there's calculation in that, sure. Uh, you know, he was out scouting around, you know, for where he wanted to go next. Um, I think some of it obviously was planned with the Ziggy Stardust. He planned to retire Ziggy when he did. Um, although a couple of albums after that still kind of had the Ziggy character in it. Um, but one thing that really impressed me about Bowie, uh, was that he not only didn't mind, but I think he liked it when the questions went a little bit off script. And he was very willing to answer, and by script, I mean, I, you know, I've got some questions I know I want to ask him, but when we went in different directions, uh, he was very happy to kind of follow those prompts, if you will. And one of the things I had asked him about was uh, a cartoon that had been in the English press, music press probably, about him being sort of a, a vulture lurking <laughs> around the music scene. Um uh, you know, uh, again, like we said before, kind of taking notes and peering in on the young kids. What are the young kids into? How can I steal this? And he loved it. He loved the cartoon, you know, and admitted, yeah, there's a bit of me in there, you know, and, you know, it was, it was um, and he, he kind of laughed. He said, I can't help it. But they, and then he said, look, this is what artists have always done. Artists have always looked back at other artists and have taken things from them and incorporated it into their own work. And so, you know, he was admitting he, he had a, he was a chameleon in many ways. And, uh, that was just a part of his nature. I think he had, uh, an incredible quest for relevance. I mean, fame, fame and fortune, certainly, but relevance as well. And he also took, uh, don't forget, the very daring step of stepping away from a solo career and forming the band Tin Machine with Reeves Cabrels. And 
I couldn't think of then or now any solo artist who had the kind of success Bowie had who said, okay, I'm going to put that aside and join a band. And, you know, obviously it knocked Bowie's status down. Uh, he was playing, I, I saw Tin Machine play. They played a like a 2,800-seat theater in Boston, the Orpheum. And previously, he would have been playing the Boston Garden for, you know, 15,000 people. So he accepted the idea that this move into a band status and only playing songs by the band, not playing old Bowie songs, was going to take some of his audience away. Other parts of his audience would go, no, this is David Bowie. We trust him. We like him. We like what he's done. Uh, do we like Tin Machine as much? Some did, some didn't. But I love the risk of doing that. And 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 he, he did just did that for, I'm not sure, was it three or four years? And then he pulled back to the solo world with Reeves as his musical director and guitarist. So a lot of a lot to admire in that. So um by by the by the the end, the last, I don't know, 20 years or so of Bowie's public life. To me, he, you know, he'd been always been so remote. You know, Ziggy Stardust was remote. The Thin White Duke was even more remote, inaccessible. I felt like he had become more human, more lovable. I felt like the way that he interacted with people on the internet would be evidence of that. I thought it was interesting. You spent some time with his ex-wife when she wrote a book about him in 1993. She described uh, she said, you've all been had. This is a thoroughly unlikable man. Now, we've all, we're all familiar with the concept of somebody who has a book to sell and an ex with an axe to grind. But do you <laughs> think that she was 100% making everything up or was the truth somewhere between um, uh, what he claimed and what she claimed? I think her truth was her truth. Um, and I don't think she was making it up she may have been exaggerating points of his character because she was in a place of trying to i think both kind of get rid of him bury him make a little money off what what they had done and also taking credit probably legitimately for helping manage him and making a lot of decisions back in the day and also going through a period when bowie was heavily into drugs so i mean there was a lot of shit that she had to uh deal with and i think purged herself by writing this book um i guess what was interesting to me was that no that was not the bowie i knew but it was a bowie a side of bowie and you know we've heard other stories other people have said and you know bowie at various points in time much like his friend lou reed uh could be a jerk difficult to work with um and especially when you know the drugs really took hold almost impossible um so I, I don't think Angie was wrong in what she said, and I enjoyed the dinner with her and talking to her because it did shed a different kind of light on Bowie. And when I wrote the chapter, you know, uh, in the book, I was thinking, well, do I want to include Angie's part in it? And I thought, yeah, sure. I want to flesh out these people that I know as best I can and use voices from people who knew them Uh very well at certain points in their lives. Um, just one other example briefly, too, in the Warren Zevon chapter, um, there's a lot about Warren and me. We were friends, really, at, at some points. And uh, there were others that I talked to for the book, the author Carl Hyacin, who co-wrote with Zevon a few songs, knew him extremely well. Jorge Calderon, who produced his last record, who co-wrote Werewolves with him back in the day. And, um, 
they had stories to tell, uh, not all of them pleasant, some of them secondhand, some of them firsthand. But, you know, Warren went to some bad places, uh, especially near the end of his life. And he was back drinking once again. And uh, it was very difficult to get him to finish that final record, Jorge told me. So, and, and also actually, too, I should mention Crystal Zivon, his ex-wife, still friend, but ex-wife, uh, you know, also talked very candidly about uh, the ups and downs of who Warren was. She wrote a book about him, uh, My Dirty Life and Times. And with his full approval, and he, when she asked him about some of the bad stuff, maybe she shouldn't put in, he was like, no, no, put it in. That's who I am. And that's what artists are. They are, <laughs> they're good and they're bad. And that's one of the more, I, I think, interesting and complex chapters. Uh, I, I don't know what level of fame or interest Zivon has these days. I mean, he's still in my pantheon of one of the great artists and uh i hope that's a chapter people read and i, I don't want to see learn from but i mean there's a lot of a lot of grit in there and uh a couple of the guys who produced one of his records in 2000 something uh paul calderay and, and sean slade two boston boston guys had some pretty harrowing stories about recording in the studio with warren and how basically bipolar he was he'd come in one day full of fire and have joy and the next day just sullen and mean and you know, they were very candid about that. And it was like, okay, uh, let's get the work done. You know, is there going to be a friendship that happens after this record is over? No, there is not. Oh. <laughs> a, <Anyway>. lot of, <laughs> a lot of great records get made under those, <laughs> under yeah, those same yeah, circumstances, so, yeah. it seems. Uh, I love anytime anybody asks Todd Rundgren about XTC. It's a similar story. You mentioned you mentioned <laughs> Lou Reed. I, let me ask you about Lou Reed. I gather you are personally a fairly big Lou Reed fan. I gather oh, that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, to me, probably the most enigmatic of all the rock stars just maintained that perfect poker face. It's almost hard to picture the guy outside of the 1960s without sunglasses on. Um, personally, I like I, I like the Velvet Underground a lot. I like the songs everybody likes from Transformer. Beyond that, to me, I would personally say my impression is there's a lot of Emperor's New Clothes going on when it comes to Lou Reed's solo stuff. I'm hoping, you're not going to convince me, you like what you like, I like what I like, but to help me understand a little bit there, are, uh, what the appeal is that I am missing. There are a couple things that he said in your book that struck me. One, he indicated that he was bitterly disappointed that he had never enjoyed radio hits, which to me implied that he listened to his music and thought these were radio hits that just somehow weren't coming together. Reminds me very much of Morrissey in that regard, who's had radio hits in the UK. Morrissey is baffled that how come I come to town and I sell 20,000 tickets and I'm not on the radio? And it's like, well, because you have 20,000 fans in Los mm -hmm. Angeles, which is amazing right. at this stage in your career. How, <laughs> right. how can you not understand why you don't have, how can you under, not understand what you are and what you are not? Right. I don't really know what the question is. Lou Reed really thought that the stuff that he, and I, I don't know if when he said that, was he referring to stuff he wrote on Magic and Loss in 1989? Or was he talking about Walk on the Wild Side where he may have had a case to make? I think he was talking about the, you know, the post walk on the wild side, Lou. I think having cracked the top 40, uh, with this improbable song <laughs> with transvestites and, and, uh, uh, a lot of sex and drugs. Uh, I think he thought the door was open to, to hits, having hits. And I agree with you. He didn't particularly write hits. Uh, he had some catchy, simple songs and got, had one with the one called I Love You, Suzanne, back in the MTV era, yeah. which was fun and just kind of almost a throwaway, but fun. Um, 
but by and large, I mean, he was to me, and I think to his fans, an album artist. He wasn't somebody who just heard a single and bought it because of a single. It was like, if you were a fan, you would buy the record, listen to the record, process it. Um, I agree with you up to the point of going, was everything great? No. And there were records I passed on, uh, certainly, or listened to a bit, went, mm, not one of his best. I'll put it in the collection and, you know, maybe pull it out, probably won't. I think what brought me into Lou uh, post Velvet Underground, post Rock and Roll Animal was the Berlin record. Uh, it was one of his favorites. It was, it remains one of my favorites. It's one of the most harrowing records ever made. Um, scary, you know, emotional, damaged, uh, elegaic. I mean, it just, uh, it, it touches me in so many ways. And I heard it as a kid. And this was a world way outside of my purview. Um, the drugs and sex. And decadence were things I could, I'd only maybe read about or heard about. But he did bring me into that world as fiction, even though some of it was likely drawn from his own life. Um, and it's a record that stands up. And I remember talking to him. Oh gosh, I guess it was somewhere in the eighties, which, you know, uh, how many years? 10, 10 or more years after Berlin came out and failed miserably because no one really wanted to buy this sad record produced by Bob Ezrin. And, uh, in concert, I think Lou did, I don't know, four, five, or six of the songs. Not to promote the record. The record was dead. People aren't going to go out and buy the record. He just did those songs. And I asked him about it. And he said it was just kind of like, I don't really care. I like those songs. You know, I'm going to play them. They're important to me. And, uh, you know, kind of inferring, you know, people can put up with it or not. But this is my choice. And uh, for me, it was a great choice. I loved hearing those songs live. Um, there are probably some in the audience who went, I don't know. I didn't buy this record. I don't really like these songs. So, you know, he, he took those those chances. And, uh, I, you know, I he's somebody I pretty much stayed with through the end. Uh, maybe not the record he did with Metallica. <laughs> maybe that was, I didn't even write about that. It was like, I got nothing to say here. No, <laughs> it was just a misfire on all counts. Um and so, you know, like anything, there there are periods I like better than others. Um, and but yes, he's somebody whose work I enjoyed. And as I say in the book, you know, I interviewed him, I don't know, half a dozen times or something. And for whatever reason, we got on. And I know he didn't get on with a lot of journalists. And it wasn't because I was soft or you know easy or anything, I don't think. Um, I think he enjoyed the badinage and sometimes the confrontation. Um it was a friendly confrontation sometimes. And um, he had a great dark sense of humor, which I plugged into. And, you know, so we related on that level. And I think one of the more fun anecdotes in the book and concerning Lou especially was the time we had a phone interview scheduled on a Sunday afternoon. It was for uh, one o'clock. And coincidentally, that happened to be the same time the Patriots and the Jets had a football game. I was a Patriots fan in Boston. He was a Jets fan in New York. And he called up a little before one and said, hey, Jim, um, you know, the game is coming on right now. Could could we maybe do this interview at halftime? And, and I'm thinking before we even called, ah, shit, this is during the game, before DVR era, right, of course. And, and uh, when he said that, I went, absolutely, let's do it. So sure enough, <laughs> at halftime, phone rings. Hey, Lou, <laughs> he'll talk for 20 minutes, did the interview, went back to the game. I like that. <laughs> he, he said that there was more humor to his uh, to his songs, to his lyrics, I guess, than people gave him credit for. Um, I, I, again, I can, I can see where Walk on the Wild Side, he may have made that 
case if that's how he wanted those lyrics to be perceived the way that we would have thought about those subjects in you know 1973 obviously different from how they would per- be perceived 50 years later um as a fan and also again i've never thought of comparing him to marcy before but I'll, I'll make another comparison people laugh and they say well his voice is terrible and you say well yeah at, at times it kind of is but i don't think people who aren't marcy fans realize there is unintentional comedy but at times there is intentional com- <laughs> he's in yes. on the joke more than you realize yeah yeah you, as a as a as someone who's probably listen to at least you know every Lou Reed record at least once do you experience that 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 there was more intentional comedy laced in there than people casual fans might be aware of yes I do uh and this is totally not related to Lou except I just saw the band Sparks and was just reviewed them and I was reading uh, Chris Wellman's review also the other day and Sparks is a band that has a lot of inherent humor in what they do. You can catch it or not catch it. You're very, it's very easy to watch a Sparks concert or listen to a record and not catch all the in jokes and all the wordplay and the puns and this and that. Um, or you can dig deeper and you get all that. So you get those l- different levels of, uh, meaning or, or enjoyment, however you want to put it. And I do think Lou was like that. Uh, I mean, he knew he had a dark sense of humor. So it wasn't, you know, broad comedic, uh, it wasn't slapstick kind of humor, but it was sly and it was, it was dark. Um, you know, you have to, uh, well, actually best example, uh, is the take no prisoners live album, uh, double album. Uh, kind of a bold effort. He recorded at the bottom line in New York and he took off on pretty much all of his songs were vamps, longer extended versions of the songs with him as playing a sort of stand up comic during and between the songs, ripping into people, critics, especially, um, others telling stories. And it was the Lou that people really hadn't seen before, but it was sort of the offstage Lou that I knew to some extent. Um, previously on stage he was pretty taciturn he did the songs i don't remember him really even talking to the audience did the music went off that was it so this was a complete change of pace and i'm sure the people who went to the show not expecting this or anything were like holy shit he's telling not jokes but he's being funny and loose and you know barbed and um you know that was that kind of opened up i think for the general general public the idea that oh this is lou reed too he's a funny son of a bitch mean sometimes but funny what would you think of comparing his musical output to uh to bob dylan in this regard i think uh again bob dylan has never particularly spoken to me and when you say well the songs most of them aren't all that original and you know he's obviously not the most talented natural singer who's ever been in rock and roll people sometimes will say well you kind of just have to think of it as poetry set to music the music is a lot of times often incidental to the words do you feel that way about lou reed sometimes that it's 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 a it's a lyrical delivery mechanism occasionally and i I know lou thought of that too i mean i try to recall but i think he did say he felt that the lyrics should stand up as mm-hmm. poetry in and of themselves, uh, regardless of the music. And not many musicians say that. Um, and in fact, they, they will sometimes say that the words are less important than people like me. Critics make them seem to be because it's more about the melody or the rhythm or the arrangement. And the, and the words really even take kind of a back seat. And you'll see that in bands where the producer will mix the vocals down, where they're not 
uh, as integral to the sound. I'm noticing uh, you're wearing a Cocteau Twins t-shirt. Talk about bands that buried the lyrics, right? Sure. Or created a new language uh, where you didn't know what the language was. So everything that they put out there, it was all however you interpret it um, without any real guide to what the song is about. And I think a lot of bands, uh, not as overt as Cocteau Twins by any means, but a lot of bands do that, where um, the song may have a vagueness to it, and that's fine, and it's up to you to decide what it is. Um, it, Lou was not like that. I mean, Lou did want uh, the lyrics to be front and center. Um, sometimes, obviously, it's step back for the music to, to go, but I think he did pride himself on his lyrics slash poetry. Um, maybe that's the comparison to Dylan. I'm not sure what Dylan thinks about his lyrics standing alone as poetry. Probably thinks that they can, some of them anyway, not all of them. Um, and I, I think the same would go for Lou. Uh, do I read Lou Reed lyrics uh, without the music? No, I, I don't really need to do that. I mean, they, they, to me, they intertwine and the importance is the combination of the music and the words. Let me ask you about his one time long ago Velvet Underground sort of bandmate, Nico, um, to I, I'm a fan of Nico. I, I tried to turn my daughter on to her yesterday. I think five is a little young for, for Nico, maybe. <laughs> yeah, we, that, we went back yeah. to the we went back to the Encanto soundtrack pretty quickly. But to to, <laughs> to um to skeptics, you know, at the time, you know, at the time of her greatest uh prominence, fame, she's a pretty face who couldn't sing, who was in the right place at the right time. To fans, and I've met super fans, she possessed uh so this mystical magic, best understood, sort of as like a, a proto Bjork kind of figure to mm. me. I suspect the answer uh, of what she really was and what talent she possessed was somewhere uh, in between. You met her closer to the end. She obviously had a terrible drug problem. What did, I mean, have you, have you encountered rock stars where I, I've had this experience with celebrities where you just go, wow, this person really does light up a room, you know, to the extent that magic is real. This person's just kind of magic. They were just born David Johansson. It's like it doesn't if the guy had never been in a band, he would walk down the street in the village and you'd go, who the hell is that guy? Well, he'd be wearing something funky, but chic. Yeah, for sure. For sure. He just he just popped in it like very few individuals that I've ever shared a room with. Mm -hmm. What did you get off of uh, of what was your impression of uh, of, of Nico? Well, not that. Um, almost the opposite of that. Yeah. I mean, I saw her in concert twice and talked to her twice in person. Uh, the second time was better. She had a band with her. I believe she was off the junk. And she was more confident and, if you will, happy or happy-ish. The first time heroin was part of her life, um, the concert was disturbing and beautiful in places and it was an audience at the paradise club in boston where when the song was over you could almost hear a pin drop the people were almost afraid for her it was a very fragile kind of setting she made some mistakes she had to start songs over again and when i talked to her the next day she she said she thought she was just terrible and, and just awful and she had a way i I'm guessing she was bipolar. I don't know. But the way bipolarism works, of course, is, um, you know, when you're down, you're really down. And that's where she was that day. Um, and, you know, talking to me, trying to explain some things about her life and kind of going somewhat off track, talking about how John Cale was mad at her now and wouldn't work with her again and sort of 
saying something and then weaving it and me going, asking a follow-up question and her not being able to follow it up and just moving on to something else. And I, you know, I left the, the first interview. I mean, I felt for her. I mean, I, I love the, her enigmatic quality and the darkness she embodied. Um, and, and you almost kind of wanted to protect her in a way uh, from herself, maybe her demons and, uh, admire her for, for getting out and doing it still. So a lot of complicated things with Nico. And, um, you know, it's, I, I, I don't know what, I mean, when you were talking about playing this for your daughter, no, not, not five years, five years old appropriate. I'm not sure what people, younger people make of her now. I'd be curious to know because I mean, I, I was with her during that time. And so I came into it, you know, in real time. Uh, people looking back on the music now, I'm not sure what they think. Uh, I would be curious to see. For, do you have a take on that? Have you well, talked to younger people who listen? No, I don't. I don't know any younger people <laughs> other than the ones that I helped make. But I, um, <laughs> to me, I'll confess that I'd never gotten around. You know, in, in a pre-streaming age, sometimes you just didn't buy the record. You didn't know somebody who had the record. I had. I hadn't gone beyond the Velvet Underground and Nico. Although I was yeah. aware she had a career. I actually, honestly, I think I'd even, I read the book, whatever the, 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 the authoritative biography was, but I hadn't actually listened to the music. And then it was the, um, the wonderful Wes Anderson soundtracks, particularly the Royal Tenenbaums had the Jackson Brown stuff mm-hmm. these, these days and the fairest of the seasons. And I think I'm going to get my daughter on those. I think there is something <laughs> about... Um, I just spent a little, I did a podcast yesterday about the early Rolling Stones singles. I'm not a Rolling Stones fan. I'm not really a classic rock person in general, but mm-hmm. stuff like um, Play With Fire comes to mind. It 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 feels like a, a little movie from the 1960s yeah. that encapsulates, mm-hmm. like to me, uh, when the Doors movie came out, all of a sudden we all listened to Nirvana and Red Cross or whatever, and now we all listen to the Doors because Oliver Stone had contextualized for us and we got the cool thing about the way the 60s was being packaged. Right. I think the best of the the Nico stuff, the the Velvet Underground and the, the, the early solo stuff is going to have that appeal because the oldness of it will actually be an asset. It's a really, mm-hmm. really, really great time capsule of an era that's always going to have a certain kind of appeal for a certain kind of person. As for the Marble Index, I don't know. Well, you, you know, as, as you're talking about that, the time capsule aspect of it, I mean, I think and I hope that's kind of what the book does for people. And because of the streaming age and because, as you were saying, everything's available online. If you read something in the book and go, that sounds interesting, click online and there you're listening to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there is a timelessness toward, I think, all of these people in the book because they are not just artifacts from another era. Uh, in your world, or they can be just as alive to you as they were when they were alive. Um, and that, I think, gives, you know, the writing and, and the listening kind of a, you know, it's a nice companion, I think, I hope anyway, uh, where people can get to know the music by these people where they may just know the name. And yeah. uh, you can go back to it and go, well, why is this person important? Why are they in the book? Uh, they, I don't know their work, or they don't mean that much to me. And, you know, I, I think part of, the, part of the aim is to kind of say to people, well, hey, hey, they may mean something to you if you give it a chance. And hopefully the writing and what they say brings you into that and makes you think that, yeah, uh, I'll give it a listen. 
Yeah, I apologize. I was actually looking at my phone when you're talking about Lou Reed and I was doing it because I keep a document of music I plan to check out and I realized if I've ever listened to the Berlin album, I can't recall it. And so I oh, you know, dude, I, just I got to give that a listen. So that's what I was doing on my phone earlier. And, and, and prepare, I mean, prepare for a pretty heavy experience. I yeah. mean, I, you know, it's whatever it is, 40 minutes or something like that. Um, and by the end of it, um, I, like, I, I don't know if you cry at music, but if you do, mm-hmm. you may. Now, the way that album wraps up with what happens to the kids in the picture and how the kids respond to their mommy and daddy going away. Um, I'll just leave it there. I mean, <laughs> the album is 1973, so people can figure out what happens pretty easily. But if you haven't heard it, honest to God, just listen to it all the way through. Set aside the time and, you know, be prepared for a little uh, reclaimed, you know. Um, you've provided me with a perfect segue to talking about Roy Orbison, who I, is yeah. uh, um, a favorite of mine. Um, I think my my fan. There was a bar that kind of got passed around in my family, a very blue collar bar in Kearney, New Jersey, and Roy Orbison was on the jukebox from the time that I could remember. And famously, one time, um, my my sister's sort of boyfriend in eighth grade looked at our piano, and we had family photos, and said, "Why is there a picture of Roy Orbison on your piano?" And we were forced to say. That's our grandma, um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and 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 then I went through my first real heartbreak, and that is when I uh, Roy Orbison became not something yeah. that I knew from being a kid, but something that I tortured myself with listening to over and over and over. As you mentioned already, you yes. um, had the privilege of conducting his final interview, and again, I you know I I just I, I loved the stuff that he had to say. I'll, I'll quote. Your book and him again at the age of 52, Roy Orbison said, my voice is a gift. My talent is a gift. The life process is a gift. The opportunity for the journey is a gift. It makes me happy to know that that's where his head, his heart, his soul were at in his in his final moments you make the an, the excellent point orbison the rare rock pop singer where you kind of tolerate the rockers to get to the ballads obviously that was <laughs> yes his yes. sweet spot um uh he said that he was not he was not the sad guy that was the protagonist of his best known best love songs but that sad guy was in him I was just hoping you could flesh that out a little bit. What do you think he meant by that? I think when he wrote, he went to that place. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was in some ways a comfort zone to him. And, uh, well, he did one of the travel traveling Wilbury song. Um, I forget the title, but when the, the four voices are there and then when Roy comes in and his line is, I'm so tired of being lonely, I believe it is. And I, I laughed with him about that. And I said, you know, if I didn't know you were involved in that project and I just heard that line and that voice, I, I just would smile and go, well, that's Roy, sad and lonely, tired of tired of being that way. And he laughed, too, because he knew it was kind of a, a Roy stereotype. And I'm sure there was a, a joke amongst the traveling Wilburys that this is kind of funny to have Roy enter the picture with this sentiment. Um, you know, but but yes, I mean, he did write from that place. He captured those emotions so well. And I mean, as you said, I mean, it struck you, you know, well after the recordings when they were, you know, dusty history for most people. Um, the power, it, it's over. Um, it's just the pretty, uh, pretty woman who walks away. Hey, hey, you know, um, the breakup songs and I, anyone who's been through anything of that nature. I would think it would strike an immense chord. And 
you know, as we all know, there's beauty in sadness. And I think actually back to Nico, I think she said that that was one of her lines. And, and there really is. And I mean, that's like that catharsis and the feeling that you feel that Roy has been through this. You've been through this. There's a bond between you and his music. And what adds a little even more credence to that is the fact that Roy wrote these songs and a lot of singers in his era did not. Um, you know, uh, Jerry Lee, Elvis, et cetera. And uh, I do think that that made it more personal. And it made you listening to it go, well, it's not just a singer who picked up this song from somebody. It's somebody that came from him. It came from his heart, too. Let me ask you one question about just a handful of other artists. Uh, one sure. question each before I let you go. Um, Peter Gabriel, I... I mean, I'll show my hand here. The very first record that I ever owned was Invisible Touch. So that's oh. where where the where the path splits for Genesis. You can see where where I go on that. I liked his his big solo songs uh, in 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 the '80s. It seemed like a no brainer that I would go back and enjoy the stuff he had done with Genesis. I found that stuff to be totally impenetrable. Anytime I've tried to go back there, and, <laughs> and as much as I enjoy a lot of the same stuff, everybody else enjoys. Um, uh, from his his solo output, as a person, he always seemed like he he was a, a bit much. He seemed to personify the sort of like pretentious artist type. What was your sense of the guy? It's hard to picture Peter Gabriel just going out for a gallon of milk. Did you ever get to meet the kind of guy, the the, the real person in there? I, I would say yes, and I would also say if there was a pretentiousness to early Genesis or Genesis before Peter left. I think he would probably uh, agree to that. And I believe one of the things he said was he wanted, when he went solo, left Genesis, he said he wanted to shed the perception that he was maybe a glorified clothes horse because there was a lot of costuming and dress up and ornate and complicated time signatures and structures. And I think he, like Robert Fripp, uh, also in the book, uh, and like Eno, also in the book, uh, was influenced by the punk and new wave stuff coming in where everything got stripped down. Emotions got more focused. Songs were shorter. Um, and the whole DIY culture. And that was one of Gabriel's songs, DIY. So I think he scaled back his, uh, if you will, dimensions, uh, at those first few solo albums and wanted to reestablish himself, not to necessarily sever himself from his old audience. If they wanted to follow, they were welcome to. But to really say this was kind of a new hymn and a more direct hymn, and the songs were not impenetrable. They were relatable. Um, there was a song he wrote called The Intruder, where he takes the persona of someone breaking into your house, and it's really pretty scary and creepy. And, and uh, a song sung from Arthur Bremer's point of view, the guy who shot George Wallace, about wanting fame. And if I take your life, I'm famous. I mean, to me, these are not typical rock song subjects. And he, I thought, was somebody who was very brilliant. At You were talking earlier about um, sort of songs being mini films, mini movies or something. I think he did that really well when he went solo. And I mean, the first three solos, four solos, I, I was way into. I drifted off a little bit in later years, came back. And, and I mean, like anything, you kind of circle back around again. And I'm planning on seeing him in September when he comes comes on tour. And uh, I've also sort of become friends through doing interviews with his bass player, Tony Levin. So uh, we're 
you know, uh, he, Tony's part of the story. And by the way, uh, I'm having a book party in Boston July 27th for this uh, at the Paradise Club, six to nine. If anyone's in Boston and wants to come, it is open to the public. And I was talking to Tony Levin, who lives in upstate New York, but is from this area. And I think he's planning on visiting friends, but he said, yeah, I'll come to the party too. So it's like, oh, great, man. You're, you're in the book and and you're, you'll be at the party. So I'm uh, I'm happy about that. That's just kind of fun. Let me ask you my one question about uh, John Fogarty. If any uh, rock star had a right to be bitter, it's the guy who lost the rights to his songs and then got sued for writing right. another song that right. sounded like one of the old songs he lost the rights to. You right. did not find, at least in the, the time that you spent with him, that he exuded a sense of bitterness. Is that right? You, it was post-bitterness. I think he had been through okay. bitter for so long yeah, and <laughs> probably wallowed in it and raged at it. Uh and came out of it and was happy to play these songs that people were very happy to hear. And the title, I asked him about this, the title of his book, Fortunate Son, his his memoir. And I said, well, the song itself is ironic, obviously, because, you know, talking about he's not the fortunate son, not the fortunate one. Is the book title ironic? You know, and he said, no, I am. I am fortunate. And I think he had put his life in perspective at that point and realized that a big chunk of it had been taken away by Saul Van Zandt, um, and the acrimony lawsuits and bullshit he had to put up with and this weird disappearing act and all, you know, oh, you know, he went through a lot and he had his troubles with substance abuse like virtually everybody. But I think he'd come out of that tunnel. And so the person I talked to and then the person I saw in concert later was just full of joy and i mean ref reflection in the interview you know and then in the concert uh joy it was it was lovely to see you know my one question about uh dave davies of the yeah. kinks they're you know the original uh gallagher brothers there's an ongoing war for credit i think over who who sliced the razor blade and the speaker cone to get the guitar no, that, that's dave dave will take dave has that credit ray, ray won't argue that one okay but there's plenty of other things that are disputed <laughs> between the two of them my, my question is this yes. Do you have any sense of which one is the crazy one, or are they both the crazy one? They are both crazy at certain times. Okay. Uh, Dave, I, if I had to, you know, put to the test Dave more so. Okay. Okay, I would say that. And I think Dave would probably say the same thing, because Dave's written a couple of bios, both of which suggest some very crazy episodes. Uh, I think right now, both of them are quite well-centered. I know Dave is very happy with his girlfriend, Rebecca. And, uh, you know, when I've talked to him, he's been in a very good mood and, uh, again, very reflective. Um, and, and and Ray, too, mostly. I mean, uh, it, it's it's very interesting. I mean, like you say, the Gallagher is the Everleys before them. I mean, you know, the brother thing has been the, you know, uh, the sense of friction between brothers and bands has been there in rock and roll for a long time. And, you know, it's love, hate, and they both talk about love and hate. And, and at any one point, they may be at a different end of that spectrum with the other one, or they may be very much in sync with each other. Um, I do know when I spent some time on the road with them, and I found this kind of amusing, it was always separate limos to the concert. Right? And I'd ride with one of them, you know, depending on who I was talking to. And, um, you know, then they do the gig, do the time on stage together, and then spend no time together off stage. Well, they didn't need to. They grew up together, for Christ's sake. They've been in the same band forever. They don't really need to spend time with each other. But one thing I, I kind of respected 
about them was that when I did interviews with either of them, the other one would stay away, leave me alone, didn't resent the relationship or friendship I had with the other one. It wasn't a competition. And um, I, I kind of like that. And that's one of the reasons I broke the kinks chapter into two, Dave and Ray, is they have overlapping stories, but different stories. And um, I like the way those two kind of seg segue together and uh, people can take out of it what they want about you know, <laughs> the brotherly love or brotherly hatred aspect of it, or just listen to their song, Hatred, where you kind of get a good feel for them. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, Tina, Turn Tina Turner, I don't really have a, a, sure. a question there, but since she, she recently passed, um, well, let me put it this way. So we were playing music for the kids and we were trying to sketch out some of the biographical stuff in a way that was appropriate for 11 year olds and five year olds and why what she <laughs> why the music was great and she was such a rare talent, but also what she represented and had accomplished was such a big deal um, yep. in its own right. Like what 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 do you what do you make of her career at the end of, of the day? And just what read did you get on her uh, uh, personally? I, I don't well, I don't have a sense of her. Well, let's say this. Mm -hmm. uh, after what she went through with Ike, and that's well-known, well-documented, don't need to get into that here. I think everybody knows that situation. Mm -hmm. Her career was in the pits. It was, she was playing Vegas when she could. She needed, She was broke to start out with. Ike left her with nothing. And so she had to rebuild her career at an age when most people's careers were over. And, and no one gave her a chance. I mean, in the industry, it was like, no, she's gone. She had her time. Bye-bye. And what she did was she, with others, with the help of some some other people, some mention in the book, um, she somehow managed to build that career back up again. And one of the things I saw her in 1981 when she was at one of those down points, way before the comeback, way before the, the new hits, where what she had was I can see catalog and a lot of co covers, a lot of Stones covers, who uh, covers, I forget exactly. But it was it was in a club. In Boston, and it was a phenomenal set. It was kick-ass. She was on. She was moving. Everything about it was kinetic and, and alive. And so I felt going to it and reviewing it, it's like, nah, this is not sad <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. Not the the sort of dying embers of somebody whose career is is over. It's somebody who still is an incredible performer with this incredible, sexy, raucous voice, and. You know, my hope then was like, oh, God, I hope she can move on with it and move maybe out of this area and move into bigger theaters or arenas, which, of course, as we know, she did. Um, I will just say from the dinner I had with her years later, I mean, when popularity had, had really kicked in, uh, she was every bit as uh, uh, sweet and uh, reflective as you would hope she would be um she walked in i think she was wearing like a beige pantsuit or something like that and i probably laughed a little bit and she said well you know people sometimes expect me to wear my stage gear off stage but i don't okay but that was yeah i mean i didn't but you know it was very demure it wasn't it wasn't a rock and roll get up at all and then one of the other things she talked about i mean she was so open she talked about a skin problem she had here's this one of the most beautiful women in rock and roll and she's sitting next to me having dinners going yeah i had this i forget what it was psoriasis or something going on and you know talking about the various cures that she needed to do and you know i'm thinking well she's this is public it's an interview she's telling me about it thus she's telling readers about it so she's not embarrassed about it no reason why she should be but just the juxtaposition of her beauty with the problem she had to face being beautiful doesn't mean you don't get skin diseases <laughs> so anyway it was great i i really enjoyed my time with her and um 
you know, I, I mourned her death like everybody, uh, everybody did. And I also respected the idea that she did retire, um, and didn't, I mean, she did several farewell tours. Was, you know, this is it really the last one. Eh, one more. Um, so, you know, she wanted to go out on top. She wanted to make her money and then retire in Geneva with her husband. They had, I think they had a wonderful relationship. And I know she was ill and that can't, couldn't have been fun at all at the end. It never is. But I think at least the last few years of her life, I mean, she was able to get away from the world she'd lived in for so long and to live on Lake Geneva. Um, it's it's a good way to spend your latter years, I think. Well, that's all I've got for you this time around. I'm hoping you might make time uh, to speak to me and us again when volume two comes out. I feel like all the questions I have about Lou Reed, I'm just going to copy and paste into a section for Mark, Mark, <laughs> Marky Smith from The Fall. Um, I, I find him uh, equally inscrutable. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Are you a fan yeah. of The Fall? Oh, yes, big time. I am also a fan of, I've got to say this, and I put yeah. this in the book too. If you haven't read Marky e. Smith's bio memoir, yeah. do it. Uh, yeah. It's the funniest, most scabrous. And, uh, you know, the concept of the unrelatable, uh, unreliable narrator. Yeah. I'd say that would be Mark. And most, some of the time, most of the time, I don't know, but it's, it's hilarious and, and nasty and wonderful. Um, and I, yes, I'm a fan of the music and, uh, I, you, you want me to spend one little anecdote here before we talk about, in October, about the other book? Please, yeah. Okay. Um, Mark, we knew each other. Yeah, not intimately, but we knew each other. We interviewed, we met backstage, blah, blah, blah. And he's playing a concert sometime, again, early, mid-80s, something, club in Boston. The backstage area is upstairs at the club, and I'm there pre-show with, you know, some other people. There's a fair amount of people gathering around, hangers-on, liggers. And... Uh, Mark kind of spots me across the room, comes over, and oh, hi. he says, you got any speed? You got any coke? Got anything that make me go fast? And I'm kind of like, hmm. Well, thought bubble. Mark, I don't know what you think, but I'm a journalist. I'm not your Boston Connection dealer. Uh, and I probably said something like, well, no, but... I, maybe that person over there might be able to help you out. And that person over there probably was able to help him out. Um, it was just a funny thing. And I mean, there's no real shame in any of it. I mean, Mark just looked at me and either went, no, I'm from somewhere. Looks like my dealer. Here, I'm, I'm going to go ask. What harm is there in asking? And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure from seeing the show later that he did connect. He found it. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that that sounds fairly unbrand for, for what. And they're my favorite band. That's their favorite band. And it seems like the most natural thing in the world and i i mean i'll put them on on shuffle perverted by language you know and just yeah it's great because there's ideas just but i always say to me the fall sounds like you two workshopping new ideas like they got an idea and they're in the rehearsal studio blasting it for the very first time but whereas you two goes okay now let's spend nine months <laughs> with brian you know forming this into something he goes done what's the next one um so it's 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 fertile Creatively, there's no doubt about that, but uh, I'll, I'll spend a little bit more time with the fall between now and uh, when I, I look forward to speaking to you about volume two. But for now, our guest has been Jim Sullivan and volume one of Backstage and Beyond 45 Years of Classic Rock Chats and Rants is available for pre-order now. I saw it on Amazon. I saw it on Barnes & Noble everywhere through Trouser Press Books. Thank you for your time, Jim. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Mike. Good, uh, good interview. Really good. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. 
Hey folks, before I let you go, a very quick reminder, The Deuce, my show with Jessie Mae Peluso. You've loved her on The Tully Show, you're going to love her on The Deuce. It's pretty much the exact same thing as when she's on The Tully Show. Whatever you're doing right now, stop for a second. Go find the show, subscribe to it, enjoy it, and uh, yeah, thanks for doing that. Thanks for listening to this. Thanks for being you.